we just sang, and I don't know if Garrett planned it that way, but we just sang the exact song I wanted to intro uh, with this sermon, How Great is Our God. When we sing that, do we sing that from a heart that's satisfied in all that God has for us in Jesus Christ? Um, I want to share with you today a sentence uh, from a pastor, uh, and basically this sentence and this sermon is dedicated to that particular pastor and how he's worked in my life, how the Lord has used him in my life. I do this occasionally. Um, back on the first um, Easter that I preached here, I did a sermon and I said, basically, this sermon is dedicated to John MacArthur and Tim Keller because their work on the prodigal son uh, had major impact on my own life. And it was that basically I was preaching their sermons and giving it to you because they're they're just really good. And uh, right here, John Piper from his book, Desiring God, um, is now 30 years old. I got the copy when it was the 10th anniversary edition. It was in 1986. I got my copy in 1996. It's called Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And it caused a lot of stir. How can you use Christian and hedonism in the same context? But if you think about what a hedonist is, a person who sees seeking pleasure as their highest good, he goes to show you, not just in this book, but from the scriptures, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, that God gets the most glory when we are most joyful in him. In fact, he goes on to say that joy is commanded. And this is a, you know, a 300 page book. And it's not for some, some don't want to read that much. And so he came out with a smaller book called The Dangerous Duty of Delight, Daring to Make God Your Greatest Desire. And it's basically this book pared down to that size. And his and the idea of duty, that d- delight is a duty and it's dangerous if you're not pursuing your joy. He shows you from the scriptures that we are to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. That our joy is commanded. God has so created the human heart that it longs for the greatest joy and it is empty until it finds its greatest joy in God. God is most glorified. That means the most glory comes when we are most satisfied. When we're doing our duty as Christians, and if we're not doing it with joy, Dr. Piper would say, and I would agree from the text, that you are not glorifying God as you should, because God doesn't just desire duty, He desires us to delight in it. And I remember he came to Dallas Seminary one year, and he was preaching uh, in chapel, and I, I, when I had heard him before, on the radio and through CDs, back in the day we had things called CD sticks, and then before that was tape and then 8-track, and anyway. When I heard him, I'm like, this guy must be, must be 6'5", huge, and he shows up, and he's shorter than me, and I'm not a very tall fella. And he was right there, and I was like, wow, he just where the way he speaks and what he believes about a great God, you imagine him being bigger than who he is. And so I went after chapel. I said, Dr. Piper, I walked right up to him face to face. I said, thank you. Thank you for your book, Desiring God. Thank you that it's not just your thoughts, that you're taking the Jonathan Edwards, you're taking 
to see us, Lord, from taking the Scriptures and you're showing us from the Scriptures that we can be a happy people. We should be a happy people. We should be a holy people. We should be happy in our holiness and that God is great and we should seek Him. So, Dr. Piper, what happens when I don't obey you? And I wasn't there to try to stump him and he, he nodded his head and just like any good pastor just starts giving me some scriptures and said, I too sometimes don't, but I pray these scriptures. And I don't think because it was because of me, I think it was because of a lot of people that he came out with a second book called When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. Question, are you happy? Are you joyful? What would I say, what would you say if I told you the Bible commands your joy? And that if you're not joyful, you're not fully glorifying God as the Bible declares. Where do you find your greatest joy? Today, we're going to talk about being satisfied, to be content, to be joyful in God. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And that comes from His book, desiring God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Do we, and this is the most convicting of all Ten Commandments, do we desire God? See, to get there, we're going to talk on contentment, and we have to get there through this idea of coveting. We are on the tenth of the Ten Commandments. We're going to go from coveting to contentment through Christ, that we're going to deal with the issue of coveting. What does coveting mean? We're going to deal with the gospel, how Jesus saves us from that sin, and then we'll deal with contentment. I begin with the verse. This is the last uh, of the Ten Commandments. We're ending our series next week. We've done one through ten, and this is the tenth one, Exodus twenty seventeen. And just yesterday, we were eating lunch, and I said, Lawson, aren't you going to eat your sandwich? And he goes, Daddy... I'm saving the best for last. And I thought, I know all of these are equal in their value. But I wonder if God saved the best for last, because this is the commandment that you may say, oh, I've never murdered. Well, have you been angry? Oh, that gets with, I don't steal, really. Have you ever stolen glory from God, or have you ever pilfered from the office? And so we're we're getting to the heart of those commandments. But here, this one deals only with the heart. Alistair Begg says, We may manage to convince ourselves that we are innocent of stealing, murder, and adultery. But when we come to this command, we find, as Calvin says, that it provides God with a sharper lancet for not only sounding the bottom of our heart, but all our thoughts and imaginations. Everything within us becomes exposed and brought to consciousness. What, what is the verse? It's 2017. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or as you see it underlined, or anything that is your neighbor's. And in Deuteronomy 5.21, it basically reverses the first two and adds field, but it says the same thing. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
Dr. Piper says there's no difference between the Hebrew word for desire and the Hebrew word for covet. Coveting means desiring something too much or desiring what is not yours. And too much is measured by how that desiring compares to desiring God. If desiring leads you away from God, rather closer to God, it is covetousness. It is sin. And I suspect the reason the Ten Commandments begin with the commandment, you shall have no other gods, and end with you shall not covet, is that they essentially say the same commandment. They bracket the other eight and reveal their source. Not coveting means not desiring anything in a way that diminishes God as your supreme treasure. Have no other gods before me. And not having any gods before God means the same thing. Do not treasure anything or anyone in a way that competes with God's supreme place in your life. Idolatry is what we call disobedience to the first commandment. And idolatry is what Paul calls disobedience to the tenth commandment. To covet includes both relational desire and something that can be translated as often in the English Bible, lust. It comes from the same root word as love. And so you can see how we can love something more than God. This commandment, more than any other, gets straight to the heart. And I would say that you can't commit the sins of the others without committing this sin. As you will see, that when you steal, it's because you covet something of someone else's or something that doesn't belong to you. When you commit adultery, as you will see, it's because you take someone that doesn't belong to you. You desire something that's not yours. You see this in Joshua 7, 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua, he's coming clean with his sin. Truly I have sinned against the Lord of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. It begins in the heart. The heart issue is coveting, desiring something that's not yours. God had told them not to take these things, that everything was to be devoted to destruction. And Achan said, no, no, I coveted them. I desired them in my heart. And then the action is I took them. You see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Not good for Achan, these things. And so you see it defined as taking something that doesn't belong to you, which starts with a desire for something that's inappropriate. And you see it here as Achan stole things he shouldn't have. In 2 Samuel 11, 2-4, there in Joshua is explicit. Here it's inferred, but you can see the idea that it happened Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, it was he was walking on the roof of the king's house. It happened. I love how it begins. It ha- What was it, you're asking yourself, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing? The woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David is where he shouldn't have been in the time when kings go out to war. He's on his roof, and he observes a female. He sees her. He inquires of her, and some unknown person says, Hey, she's not yours. Is this not the wife of Uriah? And though it doesn't say it explicitly, I I think it's safe to assume that David covets what he cannot and should not have, and then he says, Go get her, though that's implied. So David sent messengers and took her, just like Achan took. So he takes. And she came to him, and he lay with her, 
Now she had been purifying herself of uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. We see it in theft. We see it in adultery. We see it again in 1 Kings 21 and verse 16. Uh, when you read this, you, 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 if you don't read it in context, this is why we don't proof text. As soon as Ahab heard that Naaboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naaboth, the Jezreelite, and to take possession of it. doesn't seem um, problematic when you read it, but if you read it in context, you read the whole chapter. Here's Ahab who wanted a vineyard that wasn't his. He desired another man's field, just like it says in Deuteronomy, and he couldn't have it. And then his wife, who was evil, says, well, you're the king. Why don't you just go take it from him? How lovely. You're the king. Just take it. Here's what we'll do. We'll send some wordless fellows who will lie, and then we'll stone Naboth, and then you can go take his vineyard. And then you see Gehazi in 2 Kings 5.26. Elisha had healed Naaman, and Naaman wanted to give him reward. He said, no, no, no. We don't serve for that kind of reward. You just head on back, Naaman. But Gehazi, Elisha's servant, you know, says, hey, the rewards are good. Starts just You could see him justifying in his mind. I mean, who wouldn't want a nice jacket, shirt? And then when he gets caught, this is what Elisha says to him. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept? And notice he says money and garments, but he almost quotes Exodus verbatim. Olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. What leads to other commandments, broken commandments, is a covetous heart. The media today commercialize it. You watch TV, and you know it as well as I do. Um, the marketers create a desire in you that, hey, I need this item um, because I am not as good without it, and this is a must. I must have it. It is interesting to me as... Dr. Piper was coming out with Desiring God in 1986. There was a movie coming out around then called Wall Street. And one of the classic scenes in Wall Street is Michael Douglas walks into this meeting of all the share owners. And he gets his time and he grabs the mic and he steps up. And if you remember that movie, you know what he says. He says, greed is good. This is what drives the world. And though that movie was not theological in its uh, foundations, um, it shows us something we still deal with today. People are greedy for more because they desire in their heart something that they cannot have. And they take and replace how great is our God for how great is said idol. Not only does the media commercialize it, our education teaches it. You shouldn't be content with X. Don't be ordinary. You can be extraordinary. And we've developed a whole generation that if you were to ask them today, um, give me a, an account of who you are. Everybody says, I am above average, even though I score C's on my tests, and I am this, that, and the other, because we've taught that you can't be ordinary. And so you've got to covet something else. Entire movements have been driven by certain people who have said, 
You shouldn't want to be at home. You're made for more than that. How dare somebody say your work is in the home? And so I grew up seeing the commercial, I can bring home the bacon and I can fry it up in a pan and I can never let you forget your name because of this perfume. Because of, I think it's Argelene, I forget. You can look it up on the internet. Don't be satisfied with being the primary discipler of your kids day in and day out and raising a generation. Don't be satisfied with how God has designed it. No, you need to be out. You can be a CEO. You can do these great things. And we have entire movements because it's educated. We're not in. You see it in the Willy Wonka movie. We often use this around the house with Veruca Salt. I want it now. And she dances around and it's almost comical. And and you get into it. And she's, I want it now. And she sings. And it's so funny. She sits up on top of the chair where the chickens were laying the eggs. And then she falls through. And Willy Wonka said she went to the furnace. Interesting. And so you see covetousness defined and where you see in the Bible and in Society, it's described, and where does that leave us? Micah 2, 1 and 2, we're doomed. We're doomed. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When they morning dawn, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet, and that's not enough. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. We're doomed because we are a covetous people and we follow after our hearts when we don't sing when we 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 may sing it but when we don't live how great is our god we will follow after any and every other god and it begins with a heart that covets and so i want to show you sticking in the theme of honoring dr piper he gives us five points from his book keep grace on covetousness Number one, covetousness never brings satisfaction. Never. To to have what the Joneses have, I hope there aren't any Joneses in here today. Um, Generally speaking, if I could just have that, it never, ever satisfies. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, and he who loves wealth with his income, this is also vanity. It's quickly passing. You love that, you'll never be satisfied. If your goal is a house, I assure you, you will want the next biggest house and then some bigger house. If your goal is to have some said car, you will want that car and then you will want a new car and then you will want another car. It never satisfies. Number two, covetousness chokes off the spiritual life. In Mark 4, 19 and 20 and others are the ones who sow, mo- sow among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. You're like you're hearing it now. But the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and here's the key, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Oh, how many have started the Christian life and they've gone down the road and they've, it was great. But then all of a sudden things happen. And they see their friends getting other things, and it chokes out 
this life that was following after the Lord. Now we, we let the cares, things that do come to us that we didn't ask for, the deceitfulness of riches. If you have this, you will be happy. And the desire, the coveting of other things, it'll choke your spiritual life. You will go to work hurriedly because this will give you uh, more time on the clock. This will give you more money. This will give you more power to buy certain things because those things are going to make you happier. Or it'll put you in a better position to get in a better part of the company. And on and on and on. And I've seen it. And I've lived it. Why? I just want to be uh, a good and a good accountant. But then, no, I want to be a, a senior because when you become a senior, then you lead the audits. And then when you become a senior, I don't want to just want to be a senior. I want to be a manager because when you become a manager, you lead several audits. You lead teams. And then I don't just want to be a manager. I want to be a partner because that is where the big money is made. And I, I came from one of the top 20 business schools in the country. This is what I'm just telling myself in 1995. And in 13 years, at the age of 34 or 36, I don't forget exactly how old I was then. In 13 years, I can be a partner. And I don't just want to be a partner, but then I want to go to the Societe Cooperative, and I can make it to the big time and be a global partner, and I can go to Switzerland. Driven by this desire to achieve and to have all rooted in a heart that was not satisfied with God. If there's anyone else in here who's ever struggled with such a thing, maybe it's maybe it's just me, or maybe not, because the Bible says no temptation has overtaken me such as is common to man. And what it covetousness does, it spawns many other sins. First Timothy six ten. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Not money. Money is a necessity in the world in which we live. We do not live in a barter uh, society, though some people do barter for things. But money is a currency of our society, and it's not evil. It is the love of money, and it leads to all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. James 4.2, look at the other things that come from this. You desire, you covet, and you do not have, so you murder. You commit the act of murder. If you don't murder, we learned earlier in this series, you just get angry and you kill somebody in your heart. What does that come from? You covet and cannot ob- obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And I could go on and say you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. The heart is, I am not satisfied with my place in life. I'm not satisfied with my wages. I'm not satisfied and content with who God's given me. I'm not satisfied, so I have to pursue it in something other than God. And it spawns many other sins, many other, what I would say, idolatries. Covetousness lets you down when you need help most. The desire you go after, if only, if only I can be in this position. I, I, I did it as a as a unbeliever. I did it as a believer caught up in the world and don't think it can't creep into the pastorate. If only. Oh, I'm just serving as a as a an associate member of a church in the accounting department. If only I could become a, an associate pastor at said church. 
And then, oh, if, if only I could become a senior pastor. And then if only I could write a book and have, have so much influence. And it can creep in anywhere. So don't think you are above this sin. I'm surely not above it. It can let you down when you need it most. Here's what Timothy says. For we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of it. I know a couple who went to a funeral yesterday and I'm pretty sure they didn't see a U-Haul attached to the hearse. Here comes Juddy with the pastor of Eagle Bible Church. Oh, that's a cool looking hearse. What's the U-Haul? Oh, he's just got his rower and some kettlebells and then he's got a cool some cool things in there that he's they're just going to bury him with them i mean bury them with him i mean because because that's silly you, you don't do that but we live like that we live like that oh if i could only have this toy i would be happy but it doesn't stop there if only I looked this way, or if only my spouse would do this thing, or if only, and we just, if only ourselves to death. You may not articulate it like that, but that's how my heart can work, and I'm not the only one in the room. Why are we doomed? Because ultimately, covetousness destroys the soul. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, the immediate context here is money. That first Timothy passage I read at the beginning, it's about money. But we live in a world where people want to be rich, not just in money, but they want to be rich in power. They want to be rich in popularity. To be rich means to have an abundance of something. And there are people who want to be rich in information, the desire to have an abundance of something, another way you could say this, will destroy your soul. Ruin and destruction. But the law does what it's supposed to do. This is where I was going at the beginning of the service. This is Romans 7, 7 and 8. What then shall we say? The law is sin by no means. Yet if I had not been, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And so, if you're just joining us today, we've done the Ten Commandments, and we've called the entire series, Holding Up the Rules That Set Us Free. The law does what it's supposed to do. It holds up a mirror and shows us where we fall short. It is a path that we should walk down and shows us where we get off. It is a fence that protects us from evil. And I said, if you weren't here the first week, I said the very first week we went over the Ten Commandments. What if? What if? This is my what if. I don't know if it's a... I think it's a good desire. I think it's it rooted in how great is our God. What if our country just lived by this? They say, eh, 10 years. Let's just, just, let's do it. Let's do it. We're all into trying different things, right? That's the world we live in. Let's try everything out. Fine. Here's my suggestion to politicians, if they would hear me out. 
doesn't look like one today. I'm just missing the red tie. Why don't we, leaders of America, follow the Ten Commandments? <laughs> and realize when we break them, we run to Jesus. Why don't we try that for 10 years? Just a social experiment. I wonder what would happen. If you followed them as the law intends, mirror, fence, path, and then to see, wow, like Paul says here, I see now I'm a sinner. What shall I do? You run to Jesus. Sin, which is awakened in us, is conquered at the cross because we who have sinned and should die for our sin, Jesus, the Savior, died in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died once for sins, died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The righteous, and here it says the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. A very simple gospel presentation. Jesus Christ also suffered once for sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is the only righteous one. He is all, always and ever will be the only righteous human to ever walk the earth in and of himself of his own. He did not need an intermediary. He was the intermediary. Why did he die? I've now, if you go to the next slide, I want to show you the central aspect of this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That is the center of that verse, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That he might bring us to God. And I read another book by Dr. Piper called God is the Gospel, and it forever changed the way I understand theology. Theology is not something we study just for the sake of theology. Words like justification, words like forgiveness, sanctification, redemption. They're great words. And they're words we should wrestle with. They're words we should know. But the key that he said in that, and he used this verse, 1 Peter 3.18, he said, God is the gospel. God exists. And man has sinned against God. So God sent his son. And his son, who didn't consider equality with God the Father to be grasped, came and he gave his life and he died on a cross. And he died a death. And he rose again and he sits at the right hand until he comes again. And then they send the Spirit. Because God wants us to be with him. It's not about the theology. Though theology matters, it's not ultimately about the theology you know holds. It's about your relationship with God. And it's about desiring God. It's about following hard after God. It's about finding your pleasure wherever your pleasure lies, in God. Some have sought to escape the pain of life and they found their pleasure in alcohol and they pursued alcohol and it destroyed and ruined their lives. By God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, those same people have found Jesus. And now you pursue Jesus. Maybe you're one that, oh, I never struggled with alcohol. Great. If you pursued beauty and popularity and uh, a right reputation in society to be upstanding, if you're pursuing yourself, run to the cross so that Jesus might bring you to God. 
See, that is, that is why we're here on earth. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts will never find rest until they find rest in you. God has set eternity in our hearts that we will pursue him. And the law, all it does, it is not a negative. It's not uh, rules that bind us. No, no, no. They're commands that free us because they show us who we are. And then we run to the cross so that Jesus might bring us to God. Having done that, now we can live out what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, because Jesus died and he rose again, we can put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and there's our word again, covetousness, which is, by the way, as Paul says here and in Ephesians, idolatry. It's because you set something else up as God and you pursue it. And so how? Notice there, put to death, therefore. So how can we do that? Number one, it's by recognizing our position, by recognizing your position. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're here today, this is your position. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You've been raised with Christ. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. Therefore, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. So many of us, and I am putting myself in that, so don't see me pointing a finger. If you see them all pointing back at me, we do not set our things, our minds on the things above. We set our minds on the things of the earth. Oh, how am I going to get through X on earth? How am I going to do this on earth? If I only had this on earth. No, set your mind on the things above. How great is our God? Set your mind on the things of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here's your position. And it gives us great hope that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. We have a hope. The world doesn't have a hope. There are people banking on today. I saw stickers uh, yesterday on a car. Back window on the left. Broncos, Super Bowl champions, Bernie for president, because we have our hope set on a man. And this is what's going to save the world. If this man, if this man gets through, I assure you, friends, it doesn't matter what person is in the office. We need Christ. So our position is with him. We've been raised with him, but you say, Judd, I'm still on earth. Exactly. Positionally, you're with him. Practically, you're here, but set your minds on where you've been seated. And also recognize your power. How do you get over coveting things? Recognize your power. Second Peter 1, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, our, and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Next slide. Everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory. He's given us everything we need. Everything. In the Bible. Does it give us proof text on how to buy a house, how many cars to have? No. But everything you need to live is in here. For the great and precious promises. For by these, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, of which Proverbs says they're more desired than riches. 
so that by them, those promises, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust, or you could easily put the word coveting. God is enough. God is good. God is enough. We've been saved from our sin, and he's going to help us. And that's all you need. The more I get this, and I'm just starting, maybe it's because I'm getting older, I don't know. But the more I think about tomorrow and I go, you know what? And it all comes down to, where am I going? What? Why am I? I don't need to get worked up about this. I'm going to heaven. This is no big deal. We can work through this. I'm going to heaven. And when I get to heaven, do you, do you set your mind on things over there? God is good. And so we've gone from coveting, we've moved to Jesus, and now you and I can be content. If the first was recognizing our position and the second is recognizing our power, I'm going to give you eight more things on contentment. Not because eight is a cool number, but just that's how it works. Number one, contentment begins with a taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I'm told this illustration before. My oldest child was, we were at a pizza place in Tulsa, and she was a little out of sorts, and my brother said, give her some ranch. I said, okay, the ranch it is. And she was, she had tasted and seen that the ranch is good. Far better than any salad dressing. Taste and see. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. What? You fear If you fear God, you have no lack? Yes. Verse 10 of Psalm 34. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, the next slide should show it, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. If you and I are seeking the Lord, we lack no good thing. Nothing. So if I'm seeking God and I don't have a set amount of dollars in my savings account, God, God just told me, you don't lack anything. You're seeking me. I'll take care of you. Psalm 90.14 says, uh, and, and let me go to the next principle. Not only does it begin with a taste, but contentment grows through prayer. Prayer is so vital. Psalm 90, 14. Pray this. Pray this today. Pray it right now. Satisfy us. In the, it's still morning. It's only 11. I got another 50 minutes to go. S- I'm just kidding. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. God, satisfy me with who you are and all that you've done for me. Not all I can do for you, but satisfy me with what you've done for me that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Satisfy me in the morning. Pray that when you get up. Make that your prayer when you get up. Satisfy me in this this morning, Lord. Satisfy me in you so I can go throughout this day. Here's another prayer. Uh, We often pray a part of this one in Proverbs 30, 7 and 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. I entered... Uh, the one and the two here. That's not in the text, but I wanted to show you. Number one, we pray, remove far from me falsehood and lying. We do. We don't want to be deceived. 
God removed that. But do we pray this? We pray this first one. Give me neither poverty. But, you know, I'm a good steward with what I have. Why don't you give me some riches? No, this is not what it says. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needed for me. Here's why. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I have encountered plenty. I went to a school in Dallas, a private school in Dallas, and I now live in one of the most uh, expensive counties in the country. And I've seen those who have plenty, they could care less about Jesus. It is amazing. They have it all. And they could care less about God. Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So Solomon is praying, give me, it's not Solomon, it's somebody else. Either, forget, I'd have to turn in my Bible and find. Actually, uh, Proverbs 30, the words of Agar, son of Jacob. So Agar is saying, uh, give me, give me enough. Give me what I need. Satisfy me with your presence. It begins with a taste. It moves through prayerful dependence. And number one, number five, contentment is proven in our suffering. Contentment is proven in our suffering. It's proven. You want to know if you're content in God? It happens when you suffer. Watch people. Watch people lose kids. Watch people go through trouble. Emotionally. You want to see it? You want to see contentment? You want to see fruit? You see it in suffering. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine. This is almost quoting Exodus as well. The produce of the olive fail, and the yield fields yield no food. The flock, ox, and donkeys be cut off from the fold, and there be no food in the stalls. Life's not giving me what I wanted, is what Habakkuk saying, life isn't fruitful. Yet, yet, I will rejoice. There it is, to have joy in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Not fig trees, not fruit from the vines, not the produce. God is the Lord. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Contentment is proven in suffering. Seen it. Good friend of mine went through some turmoil, said, how are you doing? I said, I don't know, but every day I just praise the Lord. He's provided, and I'm just like, he's been through the ringer. And I just go, and I get upset because my car's got a dent in it. And this guy's not been handed what I've been handed. And he says, God's got you. And I stood right here behind a, a music stand in the fall of 2009. And I said it then and I'll say it now. God is good. The Lord is good and he does good. And my friends, God is enough. There's no amount of cars. There's no amount of houses. There's no amount of popularity. There's no amount of beauty. There's no amount of retirement. Whatever you're longing for, it doesn't compare to how great is our God. 
created the world, and he's given it to you today. He's given it to us more than any. I'm from Texas, so I love the great state of Texas. But we live in Colorado where there are mountains. Like right there, we could go out there and put chairs away. We could go hiking. God made that for you. God made it for his glory for you to enjoy and for you to tell the world, God made this for his glory for us to enjoy. Bring your friends along. He made it for us. We don't need anything. We're, we're always longing for that next thing. If I could just get this built on my, if I could just get my car repaired, then it would look nicer. If I could just get this done on my house, if I could just take this trip, if I could just get this position in my job, if I could just have this friend, or if I could just look this way, or if I could just succeed at this sport, and you just go on and on. God is good and does good. He is enough. And when you're suffering, He is enough. My friend Paul Polk, one day I got a call. My son's in the hospital. He said, Judd, can you bring me my Bible? He didn't want anything else. He wanted his Bible. Because contained in the Scriptures is the power for life and godliness. Number six, contentment is realized in righteousness. It's not realized in anything else. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. You want to be satisfied? Go after righteousness. God will give you enough. You'll be satisfied. You you want to be satisfied? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things in that context, all these things, food, clothing, etc., it'll be added to you. Seek first God. It's realized in righteousness. Contentment is also seen in money. Contentment in your money. This is where it gets hits close to home, folks. Luke said it like this. Soldiers also asked him, and what are we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone. The soldiers were in a position of power. They could have taken money by threats or by false accusation. Hey, if you don't give me your money, I'm going to go report to you. But be content with your wages. Are you content with your wages? If not, why not? Next question. First Timothy 6 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. You got food? Got clothing? I, I, again, am blown away. Sometimes I open my refrigerator door. I'm like, this is a super bowl. Unbelievable. And then I sit there and I look at, I was looking this morning, I just look at the clothes that I've accumulated. I was like, I don't need these. I only wear like three of them anyway. But I went through the season where I just had to have that one because if I have this shirt, man, I'll look good when I preach. But you go through it, don't you laugh? Because you do the same thing every Christmas. I give this sweater, it looks good. It's gray and gray, gray thin, striped thin, whatever. You need a shirt and some pants, and that's about it. How about Hebrews 13.5? Keep, now watch the connection here. Don't miss this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Not money, the love of money. And be content with what you have. Why? Don't miss this. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to love money and all the things that money can bring, power, security, temporary happiness. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's about me. Desire me, Jesus, he says. And like we just talked about, contentment helps in hardships. 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ then... 
I am content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecution, and calamity. I think I saw this on a political bumper sticker. This is how one's rising to the top. I am weak. Insult me. Give me hardships. We don't like that in America. The minute somebody insults you, you're just like, are you content with weakness? Are you content as you get older with weakness physically? Are you content when you stand up for the faith and people are going to insult you? Are you content that you stand for the truth and somebody says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know. I just quote the Bible. Are you content if God takes you through a season of hardship and, and pain and suffering? Are you content that you get persecuted physically? Are you content with calamity? For when I am weak, then I am strong because my dependence comes from God couple more and then I'm done. Contentment is also learned. Contentment doesn't just come. Contentment is a gift of grace that is learned as we learn to find our joy in the Lord. Philippians, I rejoice in the Lord. See the key? I rejoice in the Lord. I didn't rejoice because I got money back on my taxes. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Well, what was the opportunity the Philippians could give to Paul? Paul says, but next verse, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever your situation, I would say to anybody sitting here today, whatever your situation, because I know some of those situations and they're tough and I I would not want to be in some of those situations, can you be content? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know that in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context of that verse 13 is contentment. You will not see me on a shirt tomorrow underneath a SWAT rack saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, not with my Jesus, you know, my Jesus, uh, Jesus' gym shirt. No, I can do all things. You and I can make it in life because God strengthens us if we rejoice greatly in the Lord. And finally, this is going to blow your mind. Contentment is profitable. What? Jesus talking about? No, no, no. Not profitable in a monetary sense. But Paul says it like this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. In the context, he's talking about those who were saying that great gain, monetary gain, came with their false teaching and that that godliness, he's saying, look, self-sufficiency is not what we go after, but it's a God-sufficiency, godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Seek Him and you will become godly and you will be content. You will be content. And so what, what could I charge you to do? Just I'm going to charge you to do three things today, three challenges. Number one, be thankful. Just go home today. It's I know Thanksgiving until November, but celebrate it. At lunch today over a ham and cheese, turkey if you want to get 
you know, leftover turkey from Moe's, but just sit down and go, God, have every person in your family just go through and name something they're thankful for because that thankful heart helps cultivate a content heart. God, how great you are to bring us here and, and support us for seven years. God, how great you are for three healthy kids. God, how great you are for these certain things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Most importantly, Jesus. We trust him. God is good, and he knows what he's doing. I've always loved this quote by Andrew Murray. First, he brought me here. It is his will I am in this straight place. In fact, in that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Then he will make a trial, make the trial a blessing. Some of you are in trials. May I appeal to you from the bottom of my heart, and I'll walk with you every day. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials. God's got your best interest at heart. He's teaching you lessons you intend to learn and working in you grace enough to bestow. Last, in his good time, he can bring you out again. So we're thankful for everything he has given us and all the good, and, and we're trusting in the situation maybe our immediate response isn't thanksgiving, though we should be. How and when he knows, let me say I'm here. By God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Our call is not to fruitfulness first and foremost. Our call is to faithfulness. And if we are faithful, he will make us fruitful. Let's keep faith first. And finally, be active. You Be active. Go out and be who God's called you to be. You're free to be who you are. The world doesn't need another John Piper. The world doesn't need another John MacArthur. The world doesn't need another Mick Daly. It just, there's just one. Doesn't need another Mick. Doesn't need another Mickey Barrows. Be who you, who God has called you to be. You're free to do that. I hope you can walk out of here and be content. God is good. I'm five, nine. If I push it now, I'm in heels. I'm five, nine, can't dunk. I've got okay skills in certain things, but I'm a, I'm balding at six. I'm content with who I am. I have a wife who loves me, kids who think I'm adorable, you know, Please, life is good. I'm free to be who I want to be. I'm never going to be John Piper. I can't think like him, can't write like him. God has used him wonderfully in my life. I'm going to be who God's called me to be. And you're active. Be free knowing that this world isn't your home. The next time you want to buy something, put the decision on the back burner. Do I really need this? Is this going to bring me happy? C.S. Lewis said, if I've found in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Seek the things that are above. Jesus, you're coming back. Let me be faithful until that day. Let me be discipling people until that day. And finally, you're free, well, you're free to love and give. Free to love people. When you're content with who God's made you and you're content with who God is, you're free to love and you're not going to worry about if they don't like you because you say the wrong thing. You're not going to worry about your God is the one 
you're more concerned. You're more concerned with his reputation. And then you're free to give your money away. You're free to give. God's going to take. For I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You're free to give your money away. It's a good gospel proverb. And finally, you're free to persevere. I really think if I were going to do another sermon on contentment, I would spend, I've spent enough time, but I would spend the rest of the time talking about perseverance because you and I will not and cannot make it to the end. We will not persevere to the end without contentment. You can make it to the end, but you won't go peacefully and joyfully to the end without contentment. And we have not been educated, even when I was a kid, to, to take the long road to something. We've been educated to do something as quick as we can, as fast as we can, to get the most result, most results we can in the shortest amount of time. It's called the drive-through vendor. And though it, though it is good sometimes for an Asiago chicken sandwich with bacon, that is not a good philosophy of life. I said that, Asiago chicken sandwich with bacon, grilled. You get that through the window. But that's how we go through life. If I just read one chapter a day in my Bible and I say a few prayers, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, dedication, and if I just don't take the paper clips at work, that, that's just not the mentality I'm going for here. The mentality is I'm a part of something that's bigger than myself. It started in AD 33 and it has spread throughout the world and it started with 12 men and it's taking over the world in a peaceful way, not in a... Uh, terrorizing way and it's going to take over the world and I because God has me at age 42 right here for right now for as long as he wants and I get to take part in something grand and I'll just give it my best wherever I'm at and you can put insert your life I'm this and God's given me this job and he's going to use me in this mission field for this long at this time and if I could just get into that river and get into the flow with what God's doing and just trust that he's sovereign and I have a little part to play, that'll change your foundation. You won't be coveting. You will be content and you'll make it to the end. You want a picture of how you make it longer than your lifetime? Being content, not covetousness, not coveting. Look at this. That is Notre Dame, Notre Dame. It's in France. It's huge. And my wife, who's been on the inside of it, bless her heart, said, I could have one. Coveting that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So appropriate. She, by God's grace and for his glory with her girlfriends after college, she got to see it. Praise the Lord. I hope to see it someday on earth. If not, God, can we go there when you return? But do you know how long it took to build that? I get this from a guy who's started a strength organization, and he's, a, he's more right on and philosophical than some your best life now theologians. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is a remarkable work of faith, art, and engineering. Enter it, and you experience an out-of-this-world feeling of being lifted up to the heavens, floating on a beam of light. The person who initiated the building of the cathedral, Maurice de Sully, Bishop of Paris, did not get to see it finished. The construction was completed over a century later and refinements took centuries more. 
Another magnificent Gothic cathedral, the Duomo de Milano, took almost six centuries to complete. Being involved in the construction of a cathedral was, even as building it as the patron, required a willingness to be a part of a process that was larger than oneself. The nobility of undertaking a task bigger than one's life with certainty of not seeing it completed is incomprehensible in the 21st century. This sounds like a biblical theologian talking on perseverance. This is a Russian kettlebell instructor on the longevity of his strong first organization. And when I read that, I go, I've got to go do one of these certifications just to meet the guy so I can say, hey, you ought to come to know Jesus and then go proclaim the gospel. Because that thinking is powerful. That thinking will take me past what I've got to do this week. That'll get me past whatever I have to do this summer. That'll get me into the next generation. That'll keep me going, that I'll get up at whatever time, however long, and I'll pour into people because I know I'm a part of something bigger than myself. And if God wants to use me that way, that is what I am content with. Are you content? Do you? Because if you desire God, truly, from your heart, you'll be content. You'll be full of joy. And when you don't desire God, He's going to disband you and He'll forgive you for not desiring Him. And He'll help you and give you. I even prayed it. God, please give me the desire to want Him. Because I, I really think, and I'll end with this, With coveting and with sin, people continue to sin because they really want to sin. That is what they want to do. And I would say, pray for the desire. That sin would go away, whatever your sin is, and that you would desire it. Father, how great you are. We desire you. And Lord, sometimes I don't desire you. Sometimes I desire my own way of living. I desire my own selfishness. And so I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone in here today who doesn't. Would you give us that desire for you? Would you satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we wouldn't seek anything else And that that would overflow into all we do. I pray these things in Jesus' name.